0: Episode 7, Rocket Propulsion. You're listening to SpecsCast. Welcome to SpecsCast, a podcast for discussing the science and technology of space exploration. I'm Phil and joining me today we have TJ. Hello. Augie. Hi everyone. And Ben. How's it going? All right, so today we're going to talk about rocket propulsion, specifically with chemical engines, rocket engines and things like that. We have Ben joining us today. Ben, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? This is your first time on the show.
1: Sure. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm a fourth year mechanical engineering major here at RIT. I uh, just got off of a co-op with uh, with Phil at SpaceX and the propulsion components group.
0: Yeah, just a disclaimer, neither of us, even though they we're interns, we don't speak for SpaceX in any way. We're yeah, just, that's true. We're um, just sharing our knowledge, but not as representatives of the organization. Disclaimer. Over. Disclaimer. Okay, so let's talk about rocket engines. Um, basically, they take in... We've talked about this a few times before in general terms, where they take in oxidizer, uh, another propellant fuel, mix them together, blow them up, and we go into space. Right? But so far, we've treated it as like a black box where you have different kinds of fuel going in and then different thrusts coming out. But let's talk about how a rocket engine works. So the fuel goes in.
2: So before we go in. into fuel in, fuel out, the basic principle is that you're in space, there's no air, there's nothing to push against, you know, can't push off the ground, stuff mm-hmm. like that. <clears throat> so the main way that you change your momentum is that you take a certain amount of mass and you accelerate it the opposite way you want to go and you generate an impulse. Newton's third law motion. Exactly. So all of the different propulsion methods, chemical, nuclear, electric, all have to do with taking a mass and accelerating it and sending it away from where you where you want to go. So going into the more specific ways we do that, chemical rockets are very uh, easy in a way because you have the energy that you use to accelerate the fuel as well as the mass all in a nice little package that in a lot of cases you can just throw together it combines, releases energy, and you just send it through a nozzle, right. and then you're
0: moving. So, like, after you release the energy through chemical, release the chemical energy, you also push that used up mass out the back. Exactly. Right? That's what you're saying. And that works for launch stages within atmospheres as well. No, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, if you actually
2: used- look at the formula, being in the atmosphere and pushing against the air actually decreases your efficiency.
0: Interesting. So, um, going off of that, like, Can you guys explain um, one thing that I've always kind of wondered and I'm not sure about? Why do engines in space have bigger engine bells, like bigger nozzles at the end than launch stages within the atmosphere?
1: All right, so I'll give it a shot. Um, It it has to do with how the mass coming out of the the nozzle expands. Um, When you have a bigger nozzle, you get more expansion. And you need this because you like, like you said, you can't push off anything in in in, in a vacuum, right? But,
0: so the the ex, um, expanding mass that comes out the end of the engine mm-hmm. is pushing against the nozzle, and that's where it's transferring its force to the rocket itself.
2: Yeah. So basically, you're starting with a dense, slow-moving mass, and you're going to expand that right. into a less dense, fast-moving mass. Right. Right, and that's where you're getting a momentum change. You're taking all that heat energy and that hot, dense gas, yeah. expanding it out. But what into, does you have to do with the nozzles? And to speak, and so with the nozzles, uh, the specific design is called a de Laval nozzle. That is a specific shape where it goes in from you know regular width, curves in, and then expands outward. Okay. Um, and so with that de Laval nozzles, those are the most efficient nozzles for uh, basically expanding that gas, and with. Uh, upper stages with the large bells you basically you want to match the pressure of the gas to the pressure of the ambient the ambient pressure so in space there's zero ambient pressure basically so you want the biggest and so you, you want to optimize optimize to basically zero pressure so basically the way i like to think of it is that the gas is compressed and it wants to go outwards yeah right but you have the walls of the combustion chamber the walls of the nozzle and basically you want to expand the walls outward so that instead of pushing out against the walls it's going it's pushing itself directly out of the engine backwards. Okay. And so you want to match the length of the nozzle so that when it goes when it reaches the end of the nozzle, it doesn't want to go out anymore. It just wants to go straight back out of the rocket.
0: And when you're inside the atmosphere, you have the added pressure from the atmosphere itself. So you you have a smaller you just, the, so the less pressure yeah, outside. Your ambient, your ambient pressure bell.
2: is different. So right? So like um, a nozzle that expands out to ambient pressure of, you know, sea level. Is different than one that's 100,000 feet or space. So um, what you actually happens is you actually optimize not for sea level and not for upper atmosphere for uh, first stage. You want to do that. Uh, you kind of choose a pressure in the middle. So you're actually less efficient when you take off, and then you reach optimum efficiency, and then you become a little less efficient um, towards the end of the, the first stage burn.
0: And then once you enter the atmosphere, you stage and you have a whole new nozzle okay. to work with.
2: Yeah, and there's also a trade-off because um, of m- nozzle diameter, because ideally, I think mathematically you want, you could have an infinite nozzle, and that would get you the most efficiency, because right. you go up to zero pressure. Right. Uh, but obviously, anything that you build in the real world of infinite size has infinite mass, and when you come to s- spacecraft, you want to save mass or uh, wherever you can. Yeah. So there's actually an optimal. Um, size of you expand it to you know 90 95 percent and you, you cut it out
0: nine percent
3: yeah you
2: cut off the common. nozzle because you're going to be gaining too much extra weight and mass to make up for the efficiency gains
3: so what about um Rockets that have three stages or, or multiple stages other than just two stages where you separate and then you use the bigger bell nozzle. Are
0: you referring to um, 3 like inline stages three, like the Saturn V? Exactly, yeah. So so does that
3: optimize the middle
0: range somewhere
3: in there?
1: So that just has to do with the, where the payload is destined to go. The three stages on the Saturn V, uh, the Saturn V is designed to go to the moon, right. right? So you need one stage to get up to speed in the atmosphere, a second stage to get to orbit around the Earth. And then the third stage to get to the yeah. middle. So it's really all about weight saving, their mass savings. It's
3: not so much about um, optimizing the nozzle size for the second or, or the third stage. Um,
2: yeah. Oh, yeah. So with staging, you're optimizing the total vehicle and you're basically optimizing the mass fraction. Uh, but that does give you the opportunity for each engine uh, for each stage to optimize the design for the range of flight that it'll fly through. Sure. So you can be more efficient. In so, that. did did the Saturn V
3: do that, though, I guess is my question? Did they have a larger bell size for the, the second and third stages than the first?
2: Uh, I believe so. They um, used a different fuel. Yeah, you're using different fuel and a different mm-hmm. engine type. So, the F1s are on the first stage, mm-hmm. and you yeah. have G, uh, J2s mm-hmm. for the second and third. So, there's, you know, they're different chamber pressure, So, it's, you can't compare absolute bell size between them. Does bell uh,
0: size change with fuel? as well? I mean, I guess it, depends it's all about pressure. So you want to take right? your
2: chamber pressure and then match that with your ambient pressure to whatever you want. And your
3: chamber and pressure will, will obviously change. Different different and you optimize for different fuels, yeah. Okay.
1: Are
0: they that much different? The different types of fuels?
1: Yeah. They are. <laughs> 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 I, I, they are. Uh, a, a rocket that's designed to use hydrogen is a lot different than a rocket... Uh, that's designed to use RP one or kerosene. Um, the same principle is there, but they definitely you can't. It's not interchangeable, you know, because you it's can't just swap out the hydrogen for for RP one. It's a different chemical reaction, right? Like totally different parameters
0: So, um is it as simple as taking the fuel in, putting it in a small spot, and then lighting it on fire, like sparking it,
1: igniting it? How is how does the ignition take place? That's what always baffles me. Well, again. I mean, different, in general
0: terms. Different yeah.
1: applications yeah. do it differently, right? It is it is like an, an ignition. You know, you, you have your fuel, you have your oxidizer, and you need a heat source. Um, SpaceX specifically uses uh, hypergol or a chemical that reacts with the oxidizer and heats up, and that's what causes the ignition source. But I believe that, that the shuttle used uh, sparks.
2: Yeah, the shuttle used sparkers. Uh, SpaceX uses a -A 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 T-E-A-T-A-B, which are two uh, different chemicals that combine and becomes pyrophoric.
1: Hypergol, yeah. Yeah, they're hypergolic. Hypergol is a general general term. T-Tab is the the actual substance that they use.
2: And so uh, they're pyrophoric, which means that you pump them into the chamber with the oxidizer, and they'll react spontaneously with that. And that gives you your initial heat, and then bring in the kerosene, and then the engine started. So the kerosene and the oxygen,
3: when they're mixed automatically ignite, right? That no. would be the hypergolic?
2: No. So kerosene and oxygen are very combustible, but not hypergolic. That so heat comes from department. TA.
1: The, the liquid oxygen is hypergolic.
2: Um, With and TA, TEA and TAB.
1: Right. It's it's a hypergol substance, right. but you need another hypergol to... Um, to make that ignition and, sure. and RP-1 is not. And in and,
3: and what stage of the rocket engine, like what is that part called? Did you say that? So wh- when you ignite the liquid oxygen, what is that part of the rocket
2: engine? That's going to be in the combustion chamber. The, combust- the combustion, combustion chamber. chamber. So that's what it's
0: that coming. Yep. Cool. So where does the the um, liquid fuel come into play? Like, So you have the hypergol ignites the liquid oxygen and then the liquid oxygen, once ignited, Uses RP one and or um, whatever whatever fuel mixed together. Like I'm I'm a little fuzzy on that. Once it's ignited, then you stop put adding hypergol and you the two things mix together and burn. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, pretty much. From from what I've read, your TAB is your starter, so you're gonna basically inject a small amount of from that
0: outside the engine.
2: Uh. Y- Outside the engine, it happens inside the engine. You're going to be inserting it into the combustion chamber, but you have a very small volume of that. That reacts with the oxygen, and you also have oxygen and RP1 mixed in kind of a, um, yeah. ga- not gaseous state, but as in like the liquid drops kind of fine spray, and then everything ignites. So the initial reaction is between the oxygen and the TAB, but then once everything's heated up, then the kerosene can catch but um ignition in the rocket engines really uh it's one of the most challenging things to kind of analyze and predict uh you s- basically for the past 30 40 years just had to go out and pump stuff in and watch it explode or ignite and actually run uh now we have you know more advanced computer models and we can kind of guess um there was a video released by SpaceX about their uh, computational fluid dynamics of oh, uh, raptor and that's with methane and liquid oxygen. And that is a very, very relatively simple reaction where you have a basic uh, hydrocarbon and a basic oxidizer mixing together. But I think you get something like 150 different um, reactions, potential reactions from that. In the combustion chamber that you ought to simulate, and once you so go to so it's not the, just the two things that you're use,
0: using. There's also a bunch of different possible outcomes from the reaction. That yeah, so like at the moment. end
2: the result, like you know, in chemistry, you're taking these two chemicals yeah. combined, then you're getting CO two and H uh, two O. Right, that's not what actually exists in the chamber, and your exhaust actually might have different percentages. Usually what happens is that those are going to be like a percentage point or 0.1% of yeah, a percentage they're point. Not and so you can assume that, okay, you're you're going to get your exhaust because it's going to be consistent. What
0: If I were to look at all the different engines that are out there, for example, the Space Shuttle's engine and the um, Falcon 9 engines and Blue Origin's engines and everything, if I wanted to look at them and I had a rocket and I needed an engine for it, how would I judge the performance of all these different types and how would I choose which one would be best for my application is as easy as it is in the Kerbal Space Program where you look at the ISP and the weight and you look at your thrust to weight ratio or
1: something. Well, I was going to talk about ISP Yeah, that, that's kind of Go like ahead. a main you know, metric of comparing different engines because you know, you have, you have engines like the F1, which I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's gigantic, you know, and, the whole nozzle is probably, uh, I don't know, like 30, 20 feet or something Whoa, like that. Whoa, the nozzle? Yeah. Yeah, Whoa, that would, Yeah, they're pretty big. You know, yeah. Compared to the Merlin M1D, which is, you know, much smaller. Uh, so ISP is a good way to put a a uh, consistent unit um, between different engines so that you compare compare their performance. So you can compare two things, apples to apples, using ISP? Right. Yep, uh, and and also you can look at an engine's thrust too. Like using the example between the F one and the uh, M one D, the uh, the F one had one point five million pounds force of thrust, and the M one D comparatively is about one hundred and seventy thousand pounds of thrust. Right. When you compare the uh, the ISP, um, the M one D actually has a slightly better ISP at two eighty compared to like two sixty. Seconds as the units for ISP.
0: Right. So, well, it doesn't put out as much thrust. It's a little bit more efficient. Obviously, smaller. So, if you pack nine of them together, you can get a pretty good rocket. Right. Right. Right.
1: Yeah, and
3: easier and cheaper to build as well. Right. I mean, that's kind of the big advantage, isn't it?
1: Uh, yeah, it's modular. Right. So you can put like look at what they're doing with the Falcon Heavy. You know, Mm -hmm. they're they're just instead of nine, they're putting twenty-seven so that you can get more more payload capacity.
2: Yeah. And ISP is, you know, the measure of the efficiency. You can look at ISP, thrust to weight ratio, total thrust. Um, But you have to consider, at least consider all of the different variables. Like when you're designing a rocket, you can look at, you know, ion engines, which have fantastic ISP, you know, 10 times better than a chemical rocket, but you can't build a first stage of a launch vehicle with that. You're not going to get the amount of thrust. Also, depending like, on the stage of the rocket that this engine's going on, you might want to go for a higher thrust, lower efficiency engine, because that's what you need when you have to take all the mass of the rocket and get it out, out of the atmosphere. You don't have to worry about optimizing for atmospheric efficiency. You can you know, not use as complicated fuels. I mean, with the Saturn V, you had RP1 on the first stage, but hydrogen on the second and third. And so you can focus on you know, the more engineering system applications and requirements. And then once you're in orbit, you can focus on efficiency. I see.
0: Um, one thing I, I just, I wanted to ask, it's like, how can you take an engine idea or concept of uh, like a certain type of engine and make it more efficient? What are some things you can do besides changing the nozzle that you can optimize on? Like, is there, like what parts? Like,
1: <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, as an example, SpaceX actually just recently did this with their uh, SCS 9 flight. Um, in order to upgrade from the original Falcon 9 uh, version, they wanted to get more thrust to push it up to the 170,000 right. pounds force. Uh, in order to do that, they densified the propellants, which basically means that they can pack more fuel and oxidizer, or more oxidizer, more fuel. Both, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess yeah, both, right? They, so you can pack more into the rocket, and, and SpaceX did it specifically so that they could have enough fuel to land. So uh, is that more, um, a denser fuel going into the engine, or a
0: denser fuel, like more fuel for the same amount of volume in your fuel
1: tank? It, it's both. It, increase, it increases the efficiency, and they also have a higher quantity of fuel. Yeah, I realize it increased the efficiency as well. Yeah, because they increase their thrust, their thrust capacity. It's about 100, I think, 145,000 to like 170,000.
2: Yeah, right. if you look at uh, the rocket engine thrust equation, mass flow rate and ISP are very critical to that. So when you densify the propellants, the same turbo pumps in the engine, every turn you can kind of think of it as bringing more mass mm-hmm. into the chamber. Mm-hmm. So that's how you get more thrust of that. Interesting.
0: And and they did that by cooling it down and that's how they densified it. But I guess if you, that's sort of, if it's liquid, that's really the only way to do it, right? Is there a difference? Like what if you had solid fuels that are even denser than liquid
2: fuels? Can we burn them the same way? So what you find with solid rockets is that they have a lot more thrust. So the fuel is a lot denser. Their efficiency is much poorer though. Why? Uh, just through the chemical reactions. Also, you're not getting complete combustion. And the the chamber pressure is a little bit lower as well. Uh, you actually get a lot of bits of solid fuel and liquid fuel. Ideally, you're just getting a pure expanded gas. Right. You're actually going to get clumps of liquid metal, aluminum kind of stuff in there. Very nasty to breathe in. Um, <laughs> but that does take a, a chunk out of your efficiency. And uh, there's you really and again, you're not going to have a consistent fuel. So your chemical reaction happening through the entire uh solid rocket that's going to be slightly different so those are those things are big challenges with solid rockets you just have to you know go and you got to thoroughly mix it you got to be very careful uh, with your chemistry of that
3: you you can't throttle the engine either so if you have like a solid rocket once you combust it you're going until it's empty basically you can't cut it back down so if you wanted to you know maybe land a first stage or something like that there'd be no way to throttle the engines either you know, hoverland and hit the landing
0: spot, and that's because if you burn through the fuel, you're burning through the solid, so you can't control. You can't control that reaction rate. Right?
2: So you actually can. So you can't toggle a solid rocket booster on and off because once you light it, it's basically going to burn through its fuel. But you can actually design the inner pattern. So you just kind of visually, uh, right, shown a, a false assumption that. With an SRB, the fuel burns from the bottom to the top. It actually burns from the inside out. The entire tube is burning on the inside, and the entire tube is the combustion chamber. And by changing the shape and doing different patterns, you can actually change the thrust. One of the very common things they do uh, when you use those boosters is that you want to get the rocket going as fast as possible, and then you're going to reach max Q, max pressure, where there's a lot of uh, aerodynamic force on the rocket. Ideally, you might want to throttle back the thrust, get past that you know little bump, and then speed up again. And so, what they'll do is design the booster so that when they reach roughly around max Q, minimize the amount of thrust, and then pick up back again. So
0: the you can change the the thrust over the ascent. Yes. But that's fixed and decided when you're manufacturing. You can't, you can't do that yeah. based
3: on autonomous software that helps throw out. No, exactly. And, yeah.
2: It's very—I don't want to call it witchcraft because it's very <laughs> intense science. But you know, it's all based on the interior surface area. So as the rocket burns outside, the inner circle surface area increases, and you by doing a different pattern, star shapes, um, different. Uh, Polygonal shapes is what they actually do. You can change how that surface area changes over time.
0: And it plays back like a music box. The same for the same shape, it plays back the same way roughly every time. Uh, yeah, every time
2: you you make that. Uh, also, with segmented boosters, you can do a thing where uh, each segment might have a different shape, and you can kind of get a little bit different thrust through that. So there is a lot of design and kind of fiddling you can do with SRBs, but they're nowhere near as flexible as liquid engines.
3: So while we're still on the topic of, you know, cryogenically cooling, um, liquid, um, basically fuel or oxidizers, um, versus solid based engines, what's, what's the current, um, limit at which we cool these, these, um, um, fuel and oxidizers. So basically, are we cooling it down to the point where it's right before a solid or are we cooling it just to as cold as we can get it because
1: that's as dense as it will be? Uh, in theory, right, it would be the most efficient if you could have it just before at the, the, point, solid point, right before yeah, the solid right before the solid, right? But uh, recently, you know, SpaceX did have issues with cooling down with their yeah. facilities in the launch pad. but And specifically in keeping it that cold while well, it's just sitting there,
3: right? Right, but are they cooling it down as cold as they can get or are they
1: cooling it down just before the, the solidifying one? You know, I'm not sure what the actual number is. So uh, I don't know solid- the
2: number either, uh, but you can make couple assumptions with liquid oxygen. They're trying to get that right above the freezing point. Oh, I Do think... you have a number for what the freezing point is? Just to give me an idea. Yeah, of yeah. This uh, is the I'm thinking was in the low, low 20s. So you're looking at that. Uh, with RP1, they actually can't get it to the uh, freezing point. They don't want to because it starts, instead of acting like a liquid that you can pump easily, it starts to sludge up. So it's still liquid; it's not a f- solid yet. It'll start to sludge up, and then doesn't work well with the turbo pumps. And so they there's a you know practical lower limit. I didn't even think about that. As
3: colder
1: as the denser it gets, the turbo pump kind
0: of right, right has it's to busy. work harder.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. So the freezing point of liquid oxygen is about negative 360 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, which and- is negative 220
3: Celsius, and then the um. SpaceX cools theirs down to negative two six Celsius. Do you have the same information? Uh, yeah, I remember hearing three fifty, negative three fifty Fahrenheit. Okay, yeah, so, so yeah, ten Fahrenheit off. Mm-hmm. Right, so that that probably is their limit. And if they get too close, they might be worried about you know temperature fluctuations and ending up with right. you know some you don't want some part of it solid and you definitely don't want sludge.
0: And the way they're cooling it, um, at least one of the ways to cool this liquid is to cool it with huge machines outside of the vehicle, right. then pump really cold stuff into the tanks but then it warms up on the launch pad and and they they
3: let it boil out so they have ways where as it gets hotter it automatically boils out and they can keep pumping more fuel in so when the rocket launches Mm -hmm. it's it's totally full of fuel ready to go
0: is that what the smoke is on the launch pad
2: yes uh that also is a big challenge with this fuel densification so before when they had the liquid oxygen right below the uh, boiling point it would boil off and then that uh, phase change would actually keep the rest of the fuel cool What happens now is that because it's right below freezing, that entire column of fuel will heat up until right below boiling and then start boiling off. And so the boil off is not keeping everything at their desired temperature. So that's one of the reasons that they're having a lot of trouble is that once it's in the tank, every second it's there, it's getting farther away from ideal temperature and that boil off is no longer helping. Right. So when when you say it's at the boil
0: off temperature, a liquid will heat up until that temperature... And then stay at that temperature until exactly. all of it is a gas. And exactly, yes. heat up. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. It'd be interesting to see if this densification method really continues on. Are there more ways to densify
1: um, a propellant? So. Not without We're changing now, the chemical combustion process, yeah. right?
2: Going back to your original question was modifying the engine to be more efficient. Yeah. Right, so right. changing the density of propellants is one way uh changing the fuel ratio is another. Most engines don't uh combust at the stoichiometric ratio, which is where all of the fuel and oxidizer turns into its uh resultant products. They actually change that mostly because um you want to take the lighter element the that be fuel or oxidizer you want actually want more of that, so the key thing in the thrust formula is the exhaust velocity, so you can kind of think of the entire process of the engine generating a certain amount of momentum through all the different processes and that the rest of the mass, the mass flow rate going through that is given that velocity. So you want to increase that velocity. So if you actually pump in more, say, uh, fuel with a hydrolox engine, you pump in more hydrogen, which is lighter, that will actually uh, increase the ISP counterintuitively.
0: All right. Well, Ben's got to go. So thanks for joining us, Ben. Uh, we're we're going to keep going on this conversation, but thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. Thanks for stopping by.
3: Okay. So now that Ben left, we can break out the cool things. No, <laughs> 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 oh, unfortunately, there So um, do you guys want to talk a little bit about uh, external propulsion, which is essentially, you know, blasting laser or microwave beams at um, a rocket and putting them in orbit completely without having any chemical rockets or anything like that, yeah. just totally ground-based propulsion.
0: I've heard of this, and I know a few people that are really excited about it, but I have some some questions or issues. Uh, I'd like you guys to kind of explain it and talk about the benefits a little bit more before I kind of... <laughs> uh,
2: so external propulsion is a fantastic idea. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm going to upset Phil and go into the equations. So with a rocket from a vehicle design... Well, the hugest issue is called like the, the rocket equation. To cho-
0: yeah, it cho- doesn't off apply equations. if you don't have an engine on it, right? That
2: is because you have to bring your fuel, every ounce of fuel that you bring, you have to use fuel to bring it up there. Uh, external propulsion changes all that. So basically, um, there's two types I've seen. One, that you bring your reaction mass with you. So you'll have usually hydrogen uh, in the actual vehicle, and then all your energy comes from outside. Uh, also, for launch vehicles... Uh, something that's really cool is that they take the air and through something similar to a ramjet or a scramjet, compress that air, and then using external energy, heat that up and get thrust from that. Uh, external energy? Yeah, so you'd beam energy either from laser or microwave or some external source.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, And then send that to the craft. And with microwaves and lasers, it's easier, easier, where you can send it, And then have it directly react with mass on the spacecraft.
0: Yeah, so there are two things there. One is your light isn't really attenuated over time, especially not in space. Um, So, like when you beam it, it's not like sound where it decays over time. It it does because. It, like you're going, to get some,
2: you're going to get some inverse square law losses, but right. if you tightly culminate your laser, right. you can minimize those. But then the farther away you go, you have
0: to be like that much more precise yeah. with where you point and it. You really, really
2: would have to be
3: spot on. So yeah, it, it's hard enough nowadays beaming up and down from satellites, let alone following a moving rocket where you have you know all sorts of clouds and you know atmospheric changes. And right the earth is spinning, there's just so many things going
2: on. Yeah. Yeah. So if you look at it just as a solution for launch vehicles, right, which is what I've seen as proposed, the pointing is still extremely difficult. I mean if anyone's launched a webcast of, you know, a rocket launch, even they can't keep, you know, yeah. the camera tracked. And if you're using external propulsion, you have to make it very well aimed on the vehicle. If you're not aimed on the vehicle, the
0: it doesn't go. Exactly. Like, it, exactly.
2: Um, so that that's a very big challenge, uh, something I personally believe that we can overcome over time. Um, but also, uh, you're going to be in the atmosphere and you're taking an energy source. And ideally, you're sending energy. and It's going to hit the spacecraft in such a way that it heats up whatever fuel source you have unfortunately it's traveling through said
0: fuel fuel source oh you're saying the air would be the fuel source so you'd be in
2: in one of them it's taking an air so you're compressing the air and then heating that up but you know your microwaves are going through the air and through your laser uh so you're going to have energy losses So you're looking at you know inefficiencies from the energy spreading out inefficiencies from lost loss of the air and then inefficiencies and in how you collect all that energy and put it into your fuel. And so you end up having massive, massive power requirements. And you actually look at the power outputted by a rocket it is insane. You're looking at multiple hundreds of megawatts, sometimes gigawatts of power and that's because these com- uh, chemical reactions are insanely energetic yeah and the rocket engines are very very efficient at converting that chemical energy into a uh, thrust and so you have to basically take all that to electricity yeah. and then pump that through the air through loss and then turn it back into uh, mechanical energy
0: right i was gonna put that in perspective like for example the hoover dam only produces it produces a couple gigawatts of energy doesn't it and most like um power plants uh, only the bigger ones are in the gigawatt range so if you're saying a rocket would require gigawatts of energy beamed that's an entire power plant that could potentially power a a city Mm -hmm. only for that rocket launch
3: Right. And what's, I guess, interesting to me after being, uh, you talk about it, TJ, is that you said it may still be something that's feasible in the future. But if it's really going to take that much energy, it probably will never be feasible in the future unless we get, you know, nuclear fusion or some, some way to get almost unlimited energy for very low cost. Because if you think about, you know, reusable rockets being successful, like completely 100%, which is more likely now than external propulsion, then you look at the cost of that and estimate, you know, under half a million dollars to refuel that rocket, then will it ever be worthwhile to spend gigawatts of microwave radiation on a rocket?
0: I mean, I guess one, one advantage of um, re- re- reusable crafts be sort of like c- going hand-in-hand hand with beamed energy because you don't need an engine, so you just beam it up, it falls back down.
3: Right. It would, I mean, it would still totally be reusable, but really the cost of energy... Is still very, very high, and and I mean, relative for gigawatts of energy. So, and so it doesn't seem like in the future that cost is going to come down significantly to I produce do. gigawatts of energy. So, you know? I don't
2: want to discount the significant challenges, but if you look at it from a different perspective, with the Hoover Dam is producing those gigawatts consistently over time. Um, and so, what happens is with the rocket launch, you're getting a ton of energy coming th- through within you know five, ten minutes. And so you know, yeah, your power plant is going to that could be powering a city. So you have to power that rocket for ten minutes, but then the rest of the time it could be powering a city. There's you know energy storage methods, capacitors, things like that. So that's not really a showstopper. Uh, but when well, another way to look at it is that when you're not in the rocket equation, so you're when a Saturn V launching, it's millions of pounds at takeoff. If you have an external propulsion system that does the same amount of thrust as a Saturn V instead of launching your millions of pounds of fuel with your hundred tons of pay- payload, you're suddenly launching thousands of tons of payload at the beginning, which is yeah. h- a huge increase, which is something external propulsion can do. But there's a ton of challenges, especially with tracking and all that. One thing I wanted to um, talk about this, and it's super quick,
0: this is only a way to accelerate, but once if you're trying to go, for example, interplanetary, if you want to accelerate for half the time, the rest of the time you have to decelerate and there's no way to, sure. unless you have um a beam station at your destination, there's no way to slow down. So I guess it would be a cool way if you brought some of your, only like the deceleration fuel required and had like a station on the moon and you beam it and it would be like a speed boost. <laughs> But,
3: uh, or you could stick with you know chemical rockets and and beam the chemical rockets up there still entirely full of fuel and then once they get up there they can ignite and continue on their way right so it'd be kind of like a first stage second stage thing to
2: yeah Uh I don't want to jump into too much sci-fi but in the movie Avatar their spaceship they actually took the time to do a, a big backstory and actually work out the physics and so in their far future you know reality that big spaceship that takes them from Earth to another star is laser powered. Um, to launch from Earth to Alpha Centauri, and then they have a fuel station or a fuel on board that will burn over however many years to slow down. Right. That's and right then um, they fill up with fuel there and use the fuel to take off from Alpha Centauri and then use the lasers to slow down.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
2: Uh, but again, like uh, lasers, are, if, when you're using lasers as the momentum carrier, that means that they, the object has to be moving away from you.
0: it's really interesting I don't think it's going to be feasible in my lifetime but it's really cool to think about and I think there's uh, there's already like people thinking about this seriously and there's some cool applications for sure
1: Mm -hmm.
0: okay so I think that's um, going to wrap up this episode on spacecraft propulsion thanks for listening we'll be back next week with another discussion on space exploration science and technology if you would like to share your thoughts on rocket propulsion or if you have questions or a request for another discussion topic, send an email to specscast at gmail.com or tweet to us at RIT specs. If you want to hear more, consider subscribing to us through iTunes or your favorite podcast app. All past episodes are also available to download from our website. This podcast is made possible by RIT Specs, a space exploration student faculty research organization at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Special thanks to the Interactive Learning Grant Program for giving us the tools to promote student and faculty engagement outside the classroom. Our music is by Kevin Hartnell. This has been SpecsCast. We'll see you next week.